Good morning, Grace Church. Good to see you again. This is the day the Lord has made. We can rejoice in it. Even though we sang a pretty somber song just now, Psalm 6, um, that's actually, I'm not sure we put the songs together for this week, but that one is very much in line with the theme of this morning. So, might be a little bit roundabout this morning, a little bit scattered, so just do your best to stick with me. Um, I'll try to be organized as much as I can, but I will start with the fact that one of my favorite all-time movie uh, trilogies is Back to the Future. I know you might think trilogy, you might think, you know, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, um, something like that, but Back to the Future uh, is enjoyable for so many reasons, and I thought of it in relation to Zephaniah as I've read through the book time and again and preached on the text uh, on more than one occasion. And the reason being is because in the third Back to the Future movie, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, there might be some spoilers here. If you haven't seen it, that's your fault, not mine. It's been out for over 30 years. So basically in the third episode, the third movie, um, Marty McFly, the protagonist, he's in 1955 with Doc Brown and he's got to go back to 1885. So the 1950 Doc, 1955 Doc Brown, uh, great, thank you. There is a Doc Brown in 1885, but um, these two haven't met. So again, it's very confusing stuff. Uh, the 1955 Doc Brown sends Marty back to 1885. And what he does is he dresses him up and what he thinks someone in 1885 would look like. And it's completely ridiculous. Like maroon corduroys, um, a, a shirt with tassels, you know, what maybe they thought in the 50s would pass for the Old West. So Marty gets from 1955 to 1885 dressed like he is, and he doesn't have a hat. And to them, the hat was like paramount. So he gets there, and he's completely out of place. They can't make heads or tails of who he is. He hadn't even thought of a name. So what name does he pick out? He picks out Clint Eastwood for his name. Um, now, why do I bring that up? Because I think sometimes when we go into the minor prophets, and I don't mean minor in terms of lesser. I mean minor simply in terms of they're the shorter books. Uh, the minor prophets, you kind of think of them and you look and, and we get maybe a little bit scared of trying to dig into those books uh, because they seem very non-relatable and the history and the context. So Marty was out of place. The, the, the 85 Marty who was in 55 and went back to 1885 was out of place in 1885, and sometimes we might feel out of place getting into books like Zephaniah or getting into the books of the Minor Prophets. And so what I want to do is just give a little bit of context historically. It's very brief, and then I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll dig into what's happening. So basically, Zephaniah is around 620 B.C., which is roughly 100 years after Israel fell to the Assyrians, and about 50 years roughly, maybe a little bit less, before Jerusalem is going to fall to the Babylonians. So he's right in the fall of the two major Israelite empires, dynasties, if you will, in the ancient world. So they're experiencing their cultural, religious, economic decline. That's the context in which Zephaniah is preaching, is ministering. And why are they in decline? Well, that's what we're going to look at, Zephaniah chapter 3. I'll read chapter 3, I'll read the whole uh, chapter, then we're going to focus on the last few verses. 
uh, 14 to 20 is our sermon text. So this is Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So basically, he's describing the church. He's describing the people of God. So they are a mess. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. And I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. So the idea there is that God shows who he is. They would obey if he corrected them, but they said, nah, we're going to keep doing what we want. Verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So this is sort of look into the future. Right, the future restoration when God will make himself known. Now remember Babel, where God confused the nations and gave them multiple languages uh, and to, to, to scatter them across the earth while well, he's now going to restore them with one speech. For beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you were rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty, that is proud, in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So when you're looking at Zephaniah, he's a prophet who talks about the day of the Lord. All the way back in chapter 1, he's talking about the day of the Lord 
He's talking about, in, I think in, in the whole book, he mentions the day of the Lord 18 times, 13 times in chapter 1. Now, what is the day of the Lord? It's the day when he comes back. It's the day when he returns. Now, depending upon your relationship with God on that day, it's going to be a very, very good day or a very, very bad day. The day of the Lord is a matter of perspective, and it depends upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, he talks about, in chapter 1, it's all about you know, prophecy of judgment, and I'll just go back to chapter 1 real briefly, just to see what he refers to, the day of the Lord. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness, trumpet blast, battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So the day of the Lord is going to necessarily be an ugly day for some. Now we think of Jesus and we think of mercy and grace and salvation, and that's true. That's what Christ came to offer. But not everyone takes the Lord up on his offer. Sometimes even the people who are part of God's people spurn the offer of God. They see the grace of God. That's that passage in Hebrews chapter 6 that says those who have received a bit of God's goodness will be even subject to a greater judgment because they've experienced and tasted the goodness of the Lord and they have rejected it. And you see the church in Zephaniah's day is struggling because he says her officials, roaring lions, judges, evening wolves, prophets, fickle, treacherous men, priests, profane what is holy. Those who should be trusted to lead the people into a deeper and greater relationship with God are abusing their authority. They're abusing their power. They're using it for personal gain. Today's not a lot different. How many stories have we heard? How many names could we mention? of those who either when they're dead, we find out stories, you know, issues from their previous ministry, or they uh, come into a place of, while their, their deeds are found out, while they're alive. And you see how they have either abused or enabled abuse in the church. James 3 lays a particular burden upon those who are chosen as leaders in the church, who believe that they're called to leadership. He says that's a good thing, but understand, a lot is going to be demanded of you. A lot is going to be expected of you as a leader in the church. The leaders here, they don't care. They're in it for themselves. They're in it for, who knows, glory, money, power, whatever the case may be. The church is a mess in Zephaniah's day. But what is good and encouraging about the message from Zephaniah is God's intentional, persistent patience, his grace, and his mercy. If you've ever dealt with someone who's stubborn, you probably don't have a lot of patience for that person. Uh, God is patient, patient and persistent. God is stubborn in his own way, in a positive way, in a good way. He's going to forgive. He's going to send mercy. How many times does Jesus say to forgive? Seven times seven? Seventy times seven. The idea being there, don't stop. If someone repents, you forgive. There's not to be a limit. You know, seven times seven, the disciples say, well, 49 times, 50, eh, that's it, they're done. No more forgiveness. And Jesus isn't saying 490. He's saying as many as it takes because they are repentant. And that is God's 
uh, grace to sinners. So Zephaniah, he begins pretty dramatically, pretty tragically in chapter 1. We see it here in the beginning of chapter 3, how terrible things are within Israel, within the church. Uh, but how does he end the book? He ends it as befits a prophet of God who celebrates the goodness of God and the mercy of God. That doesn't end with our sin. It doesn't even end with, with shame and destruction and devastation. The day of the Lord, it ends with the grace of God showing mercy to sinners. It ends with God singing over sinners, which almost sounds kind of weird, especially to Reformed thinkers. Again, we get so wrapped up sometimes in our depravity and our sin and our wretchedness. It's hard for us to think, what does it mean that God sings and rejoices over us? But here, Zephaniah states it clearly. So three points to consider. The praise to God, protection of God, and the promise from God. Praise, protection, and promise. So what does Zephaniah say? He says, sing, shout, be glad, and rejoice. Again, Presbyterians, we're often the frozen chosen. We don't and even sometimes when we sing, it's very quiet, it's very mellow, it's very laid back. And that's not a bad thing, but he's saying, sing, shout, rejoice, give thanks and exalt to God. Let, shout it from the rooftops. Now, don't be obnoxious. Don't be rude. You know, we don't have to be offensive in our praise and our celebration. As one minister said, you know, we don't need to be offensive in our presentation of the gospel or obnoxious. The gospel itself is offensive and obnoxious to the unbeliever because it tells them of their sin and of their need for a savior and the self-righteous, the self-made man or woman doesn't want to have anything to do or hear about um, their need for someone outside of themselves. We are self-sufficient. We are enough. We, that's a fairy tale. So to hear the gospel is an offensive message. We don't need to be offensive in how we present it, but we also want to Respond with gratitude for who God is and for what he's done for us, bringing us from the depths of despair. Psalm 40 talks about the dungeon mire and how God raised us out and set us on the rock, that rock being Christ. Now again, uh, uh, it's interesting because of the circumstances, Israel had fallen previously, Jerusalem is about to fall, but Zephaniah says, sing and shout and rejoice. And Calvin says, Basically, the reason that Zephaniah can speak as he does is he's speaking and encouraging us to rejoice, the church to rejoice, as though he had seen with his own eyes what has been promised. So it's almost as though he's seeing the future played out in the present. He knows that God is faithful. He knows what God is going to do. No matter how terrible things seem to be in the moment, God is going to bring us through it. God is faithful to his promises. God is not going to let us go. God is for us. He's not against us, he's for us, and he will bring us to glory. He will bring our salvation to complete perfection at the right time. You know, it's like that word hope. When we talk about hoping for things, we're not sure it's going to happen. We hope it might happen. But when we have biblical hope, we have certainty that it's going to happen. We just have to wait. It's definitely going to happen, we just don't know when. And a lot of times God doesn't move as quickly or in ways that we think he should, but he will act at the right time. So Zephaniah is speaking as one who has, in a sense, seen the promises of God, realized he's just waiting. That cycle of sin 
a judgment and restoration is not going to continue indefinitely. You know, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know, uh, they fell into sin, they cried out to God, God sent a redeemer, they lived well for a few years, and then they fell back into sin, and then they cried out to God, and he sent a redeemer, and they were doing well for a few years, and then they fell into sin. You know, the cycle just continues. It's not going to continue forever. There is an end by the grace of God. So Zephaniah is encouraging the people to look beyond what you can see. You can look around and you can see destruction. You can see devastation, uh, political problems. You know, the proverb talked about wicked leaders, how they cause people to groan. I'm not going to go off into that right now, but you understand what he's saying. Well, that is going to end. God is going to bring things to perfection. Sing, shout, rejoice. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. Again, we saw that in Psalm 6. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about three basic things, that he's taken away judgment, cast out our enemy, and the King of Israel, the Lord, is in our midst. So how has he taken away judgment? What is judgment? It's punishment. It's punishment for sin. You do something wrong, there are consequences. I've been in the prison for so long. It's like consequences you almost don't even think about it anymore because you're talking about it all the time. You know, we have a couple of staff uh, who like to say, you know, they sort of joke with inmates, make good choices. Make good choices. Because if you don't make good choices, you're going to suffer the consequences. And they're in prison because they're paying the consequences for what they've done. There are consequences for sin. Sinners deserve judgment at the hands of a holy God because of Adam and Eve, because of our own sin. We are guilty before God, but the Lord has, by his grace, taken that away. He has not dealt strictly with us in justice. With us, that is. How is his justice satisfied? It's satisfied by Christ. It's satisfied by the cross. It's satisfied by what Jesus has suffered in our place. He has paid the penalty for us so that we can be forgiven. So the Lord has taken away judgment, not by just ignoring it or forgetting about it, but by sending the perfect God-man to live, to suffer, to die, to shed his blood so that we could be forgiven, so that our judgment could be removed. So again, he's looking forward to the day of Christ. He who, as Isaiah says, bruised for our iniquities. So we were in trouble we should have been punished. Let's say you get in trouble at work, or let's say you're a kid at home and you do something at home uh, to get in trouble. I'm trying to think of an example in my own life. Uh, of course, how many times did I get in trouble for something? More than we can count, right? We've all been kids. Um, you get in trouble for something, let's say someone else takes the blame for you, or someone wants to protect you from consequences uh, for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, they take the penalty for you. Well, that's what Jesus has done. Now, we still deal with the consequences of our sins. We still deal with the consequences of our actions in the present, but eternally, we're forgiven. He's cast out our enemy. That's the second point that Zephaniah is making here. And basically, the verb there means to, to put in order by clearing away what is disorderly. So God is bringing order from chaos. He's bringing order from confusion. 
He's beginning to put things into a right perspective, and he's putting us in a right relationship with himself. Now, we grow. That's sanctification, right? Justification is our standing before God in Christ. We are redeemed. We are children of God. Our standing before God is saved, and it's set. But we have sanctification. We have to grow. We have to live. We have to mature in Christ. You don't stop at justification. You know, if you're you know, 9 to 99, you have a whole life of growth, however long your life is. So God is taking action. He's, he's cleaning house, in a sense, sweeping away the enemies of God. He's, he's bringing order. And the king of Israel is in our midst. And again, who is this king? Uh, Nathanael recognized it in John chapter 1. Israel looks forward to the coming of the king, the promise of the Messiah, and we look back. It was Jesus Jesus is the ultimate presence and manifestation of God in our midst. Now, God appeared throughout the history of the church in many ways. I was just reading through Exodus recently, and he uh, was with the people of God and their exodus out of Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Shekinah glory was present with the people in a particular way. But even that was not ultimately how he would experience a relationship with us. There is going to be a future relationship where we are going to see God face to face and see him as he is. Moses was prevented later in the book of Exodus from seeing the fullness of God. He could only see a portion of God because the glory of God was so uh, full and, and dazzling that it would kill him. Oh, there will be a day, 1 John chapter 3, where we will see the Lord face to face as he is. We will be in the presence of our king. And again, as Paul says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? It's one of the most famous rhetorical questions in all of Scripture. Nobody, because God is for us. Verse 16, uh, so we have got the praise to God for his work, uh, for his involvement and, and protection of us, uh, his interaction in our lives. Now, about protection, verse 16, the protection that we have from God. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, rejoicing over you with gladness, quieting you by his love, exalting over you with loud singing. So he says in verse 15, don't be afraid. Uh, he says it in verse 16, you'll never again fear evil. He says, do not be afraid. So sometimes we need to hear messages more than once, right? We get a little bit thick in the head. You know, how many times did Jesus... I don't know if you can say it. He lovingly called the disciples dullards. Like, dude, come on. How many times do I got to do this? But he was patient. He was persistent in his love. Sometimes we need to take, hear the message a couple of times for it to sink through. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. The Lord is with you. The Lord is for you. The Lord loves you. The Lord cares for you. The Lord will bring you into his presence. Again, the Jews were living in a time of constant fear. Israel had fallen. Jerusalem was about to fall to the Babylonians. Uh, you know, they would, uh, temptation is to give up. The temptation is to just be done. Um, if there are any sports nuts in here, whether you watch sports, it's a little bit different, but if you play sports, your body has been exhausted. You've been tired. I remember one year playing racquetball after so many years of having not played. And I, when I play sports, I'm a little competitive. Uh, I don't like to lose, but sometimes you lose, and that's life. Um, uh, I was actually visiting a church, played racquetball on Saturday, came to church on Sunday. 
I could not shake hands with people after church on Sunday. I played so hard with the racquetball, my hands were literally unable to really squeeze. My forearms were sore. Instead, so you just feel like, okay, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to, you know, it's kind of the, the, the floppy arm syndrome. You know, there it is, and then it comes back down. I, there was no strength. And so that's kind of how Jerusalem, how the people of God were tempted to feel. Uh, everything's falling apart. Why keep fighting? Why keep trying? Let's just give up hope. But Zephaniah is saying, no, God is faithful. God will keep you. Don't be afraid. Uh, and, and, and God delivers us. Calvin says that God delivers us not to indulge in pleasures, but to devote ourselves to our duties to God. Now, that's not to say we're not allowed to enjoy things. God gives us pleasure center in our brain. God gives us the ability to enjoy pleasures throughout this life that we live. But we're not to live for the sake of pleasure. Pleasure is a part of life. It's not the end of life, right? It's not the end goal, probably. Now, ultimately, we're going to experience the greatest pleasure by seeing God face to face and by being in his presence for all of eternity. But the point is, why do we live? We live not for the sake and the glory of pleasure, but for the sake and glory of honoring God. And pleasure of honoring God is a byproduct of that. We don't live for pleasure alone. We live for the pleasure and the glory and the delight of God. And God delights in us. The Lord God is in your midst, verse 17, a mighty one who will save, rejoicing over you, quieting you, exalting over you. Now, it's of course true that God, you know, shows his love. This is the love of God, not that we have loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for sin. This is love, the Bible says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He reached out. He showed grace. Adam and Eve spit in the face of God. And God says, okay, you got to be punished but I love you. I'm going to keep loving you. He didn't just wipe them out. He didn't just go to a plan B, say, I'm going to start over. He had his perfect plan in place. And when you fail God, when you sin, when you struggle, God says, I love you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Um, Jesus came to his own. What did, how, how did people treat Jesus? They put him on a cross. They mocked him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Flogged him. Put him on a cross to die. But that was his purpose. That was his plan, was to suffer and to die to bring about that redemption, to bring about that salvation, to repair that broken relationship between God and humanity. Now, I think about these verses again. I don't know if this causes any discomfort. It can, I think, for some. And I've, I've asked some people, you know, I think the last time I was here, I preached, I talked about how some people will say, you know, uh, you'll say, how are you doing? They say, better than I deserve. If you were here last time, you might have heard me ask that question. So I said to a guy, well, what do you deserve? And he kind of looked at me funny. I said, you're in Christ. What do you deserve? You deserve what Christ died to give you because you're in Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. You are the righteousness of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. So people think maybe it's kind of odd that 
we read in Zephaniah chapter 3. The Old Testament of all places, isn't that the, judge me, the, the judge, judgmental and condemning and terrible God? The Old Testament God? And what does it say about this Old Testament God in Zephaniah 3.17? He will save you. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Sometimes we feel embarrassed by singing out loud. Well, God's not going to be afraid to, quote unquote, embarrass himself by singing over his people, his prized and treasured possession, which is us, which is the church, the people for whom he died. Again, we reform folks. Sometimes we take pride in our depravity. God wants nothing of that. Rejoice that God rejoices over you. Now, I saw a bumper sticker years ago, and, and maybe I used to be pretty harsh on this saying, and I guess I've tried to think about it a little bit, what the, the intent behind the bumper sticker was. The bumper sticker says, and I love bumper stickers. I think they say a lot. Um, Jesus died for you so that he wouldn't have to live without you. Now, what does that mean? Jesus died for you so that he wouldn't have to live without you. It almost comes across as though God needs us. Ultimately, that's not true. God existed just fine before us. Father, Son, and Spirit existed in triune communion before creating us. But what does that triune communion tell us? God delights in relationship. God delights in communion. He didn't die in the sense that he wouldn't have to live without us as though he would be incomplete without us. But once he set his seal of affection and love upon us, then yes, there is incompletion in God's plan of uh, redemption if we're not saved. Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul speaking at, I think it was at Mars Hill, he says, God is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything because he gives to all life, breath, and all things. But the fact is God has reached out and redeemed us and made us to be his people. And now his intention is to redeem because he delights in that redemption. He delights in that salvation. He delights in having a relationship with you, brothers and sisters. God delights in his relationship with you. It pleases him. He enjoys it. On your best day with your spouse, you enjoy your relationship. God enjoys his relationship with you even more than the best marriage on earth. He is pleased when he can show himself kind to the church. And that's a sign of God that Zephaniah shows to us that's really pretty powerful. He, he takes pleasure in us as he quietly cherishes his love for us and his relationship with us. So this is a, 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 a mutual love. We love God. God loves us. We rejoice in God. God rejoices over us. God will be quiet over you in his love. This is sort of an idea one commentator says, silence in this love is an expression used to denote love deeply felt, which is absorbed in its object with thoughtfulness and admiration. 
God thinks upon us with admiration, according to this commentator. And I like that. I think that's true. God delights in us. We're not admired in and of ourselves for who we are, but we're admired in and of ourselves for who we are in Christ. God delights in his creation. He called his creation good, right? The book of Genesis. It was good. Things were good for Adam, but things were incomplete for Adam. He needed a woman. He needed a wife to be complete. We need Christ to be complete, to delight in God mutually. We delight in him. He delights in us. And I think I saved this verse. I might have referenced it already, 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a fancy word for saying removal of wrath. Jesus took away the wrath of God by what he suffered. Final point, the promise of God, verses 18 to 20. And in a sense, I mean, of course, the whole book is from God, but here we sort of have God speaking in the first person, the word I, I will gather those of you. So this is sort of God speaking more directly than just through his prophet. Uh, We have a a response of God's people to his goodness in verses 14 to 17, but in the end, it ends with the blessing of God, a promise of relief from suffering and a promise of future restoration. The suffering is going to end, and the relationship is going to be fixed once and for all. That's how the book of Zephaniah ends. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival um, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Now, basically, the best way to understand that is uh, uh, the idea is that those who suffer, those who mourn for the festival, are those who aren't able to be with the people of God in worship. They like being together as the body, as the body, the bride, the church. But they haven't been able to gather and to worship without fear or consistently because they're in a foreign land, because they have to deal with enemies, because there's constant trouble. They have to keep looking over their shoulder to see who's coming next, who's the next enemy on the horizon for us. God is going to fix it so the people of God can be together without fear of reproach, without fear of retribution, uh, even without fear of interpersonal relational difficulties. Churches are in perfect places. The old saying is, don't, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Churches are places of imperfect relationships, but all those relationships are going to be fixed. All those relationships are going to be perfected. We're going to be fully, completely family, brothers and sisters in Christ, without any issues, without any troubles, when we are in the presence of God. So God is going to make us uh, as we should be on that day. The Lord is going to deal with the oppressors. He's going to punish and judge the wicked once and for all. We will be gathered together and secure in their own land. Hebrews 13 says, Here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. Heaven is going to be better than Fresno. You're like, duh. Duh. But that's what it says. Even the greatest of all human cities is nothing compared to the glory of the heaven that is to come. The glory of the relationships that we're going to have with each other. The joy that we will have in the presence of God. We will have 
face-to-face communion with God and perfect holiness and perfect relationship and glory. He will save the lame and gather the outcast. Now, God shows a particular interest in those whom society looks down upon. Right? Society looks down upon the homeless, the lame, the outcast, the motherless, the, 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 the orphan, the widow. We might even add the unborn into that category. God is going to be for those, especially whom the world despises, the lame and the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Shame is going to be wiped away entirely. And for those who live a life of shame, that's a huge promise. Some of us live in shame. Some of us shame others in order to feel better about ourselves. I call that the Jerry Springer syndrome. Uh, I think Jerry Springer gave up his day job, thankfully, a little while ago. But what was that show about? Bringing people on the show to be mocked. For whatever reason, bad relationships, breakups, infidelity, broken marriages, all that kind of thing. And then they would fight and, you know, they would claw and they would punch and all this stuff. And he would have security. And it's just a big dramatic show. The people in the audience would laugh and point and, and make fun. Shame-based living is gone. And it will be changed. No, just gone. Changed into praise. Changed into renown, changed into joy as we experience who God has called us to be. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And this idea of restoration is really key. Uh, I think the ESV, I'm not sure if you're looking at some other translations, uh, I think NIV might make it a little different. I can't remember what King James says. But restoration of fortunes is really uh, important here uh, because we're meant for more than what we are now. Adam and Eve were meant for more in the garden, but they messed it up. We're meant for more, and God is going to restore that. He's going to restore the creation. He's going to restore us to a right relationship with him on the day of his return. So this is just about getting ready. I had a conversation with my daughter the other day about why does she get ready for you know, why does she get up at five thirty when school she doesn't even have to go to the bus until seven thirty. Well, she's got to get ready. You know, I got up. Don't judge me. I got up about sixteen minutes this morning before I had to leave. Get up, get a drink, brush my teeth, put on my hair, makeup, whatever, change, and I'm good to go. Takes a little bit longer for some to get ready for things. We are spending our life getting ready for the Lord's return. And in Christ, we're there in a sense, but not yet. We're living in between the already and the not yet. The already of our, our, of our justification accomplished, but the not yet of our justification fully to be applied because we're not in the presence of God yet. So get ready. Work on it by the grace of God. It is a life of sanctification. It's a life of growth. It's a life of preparation. You don't just sit around in the lazy chair of spirituality and, and, and flip channels and wait for God to act. You've got work to do. Get out there and do it. But walk by faith, 
not by sight. Trust. Have that sense of certain hope that God is going to act at the right time. He is for you. He is with you. He is leading you and carrying you through until the day of his return. And I think it's Romans 8 where Paul talks about the creation groaning with pains of birth until the Lord returns. And I think he's, now Paul wasn't a woman. No matter what the modern world tries to say about how you identify, Paul was not a female. Paul could not give birth. But he understood that a woman who gives birth is dealing with pains until the realization of the pregnancy, until the coming of the child. So the earth is groaning presently until the realization of the return of the Lord when he will remove that struggle, he will remove that pain, he will remove that suffering and restore us to right relationship with him. Our fortunes will be restored before our very eyes. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you believe that. I pray that you trust that. I pray that is an encouragement to you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are acting each and every day for the best interests of the church, for the best interests of your people. The world will tell us lies. The world will mock. And Christians will stumble. But, Lord, we know that you are for us. And so we pray that you help us in our struggles, in our sin, in our shame, to be humble, to be ready to repent, and to turn to you in our time of need. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the promises of yours that are yes and amen through Christ. We thank you that Christ came in the fullness of time, at the right time to accomplish our redemption. And Lord, we wait for the final day of glory when we will see you face to face. So encourage us until that day. And through the celebration of communion, the Lord's Supper this morning, we see that uh, in even more real fashion. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.